Let's pray as we come to God's word. Gracious Heavenly Father, help us now to listen carefully, to pay attention, to learn what you want us to learn, not only to understand a difficult passage, but that we might be transformed and changed and challenged by your word. We pray in Christ's name, amen. You can turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 11. We are one week off of the printed sermon schedule that came out months ago because, as you remember, we had Tom Grossema come and preach one of the Sunday evenings, so that means that it falls to our esteemed Mike Miller to wrap this all up next week. And so we are not on Daniel 12, as the schedule says, but on Daniel 11 tonight. And I would encourage you, make sure you have a Bible opened or swiped on so you can follow along as we will be referring to this strange and difficult and hopefully edifying passage. The commentator, H.C. Leopold, famously remarked about tonight's passage, quote, this chapter might be treated in Bible classes. We do not see how it could be used for a sermon. Well, with that great vote of confidence, we are venturing forth to Daniel 11. He does have a point. This chapter, you can see, as some of you have turned to it and now your faces are turning sullen, it is long, it is confusing, its interpretation is debatable, and any effort to explain these verses in great detail is, I'm sorry to say, bound to be tedious. Aren't you glad that you came out? But you know that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for us, and so this passage has something that God means for us to hear and understand. There are important lessons for us, even in Daniel chapter 11. I want to highlight tonight three lessons from Daniel chapter 11. Here's the first lesson. Put not your trust in princes. Follow along. I'm going to read beginning at verse 2 through verse 20. And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. Then the king of the south shall be strong, but one of the princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule, and his authority shall be a great authority. After some years they shall make an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement, but she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure, but she shall be given up and her attendants, he who fathered her and he who supported her in those times. And from a branch... From her roots, one shall arise in his place. He shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he shall deal with them and shall prevail. He shall also carry off to Egypt their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold, and for some years he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. And the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. His sons shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces, which shall keep coming and overflow and pass through and Again, shall carry the war as far as his fortress. 
Then the king of the south, moved with rage, shall come out and fight against the king of the north, and he shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into his hand. When the multitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted, and he shall cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail. For the king of the north shall again raise a multitude greater than the first, and after some years he shall come on with a great army and abundant supplies. In those times, many shall rise against the king of the south, and the violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. Then the king of the north shall come and throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city, and the forces of the south shall not stand, or even his best troops, for there shall be no strength to stand. But he who comes against him shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him, and he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. He shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom, and he shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them. He shall give them the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. Afterward, he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall capture many of them, but a commander shall put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back upon him. Then he shall turn his face back toward the fortresses of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. Then shall arise in his place one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom, but within a few days he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle." Psalm 146 tells us, put not your trust in princes, in a son of man, in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. I don't have to tell you what the the big news of the week was. It was, at least in the national news, that the President of the United States was impeached by the House of Representatives. Now, perhaps you would have uh, brought your friends and family out if you knew I was going to say something about the impeachment, but I'm not giving any commentary on that. But I do think it gives occasion to make this important biblical point. There is a temptation in our day, and I suppose it's in every day, and it happens on both sides of the political aisle, to invest all of our hopes and our dreams in our political leaders. And so we think when our guy is in, he's bound to be the Savior. And when the other side has their guy, or suppose their gal in, well then, he's a devil. And if only we could get to the next election and have our guy in, then everything would be different. Now please hear me, of course elections matter, presidents matter, they can pursue policies that harm or help the church. They can display character that inspires or debases a nation. The point of Psalm 146 and the point of Daniel 11 is not to tell us, don't care about earthly kings and kingdoms. But both Psalm 146 and Daniel 11 remind us, profoundly so, we ought not put our trust, our ultimate hope in earthly kings and kingdoms. And you'll see in just a moment how this is abundantly, repetitively clear in Daniel chapter 11. The kingdoms of this world, and even more so the kings, are transitory and temporal, they are fickle, and they are fleeting. Whether you are invested in this president or would prefer a different president, whether you pay attention to affairs across the pond and you are for Brexit or against Brexit, 
whether you pay attention to anything going on in the Asian theater or Africa or the rest of Europe, it is the same across the world. Do not put your trust in princes. That is a biblical command, not that all of them are utterly untrustworthy, but that our ultimate hope of deliverance, of salvation, of the sort of kingdom that we long for and pray for as Christians can only be accomplished through the King of Kings. Now, there are a number of ways that we can go about Daniel chapter 11. You can read any number of commentaries, or some of you have a study Bible on your lap, and they will lead you through the intricacies of this passage's historical fulfillment. If you want one of the, uh, the better commentaries on Daniel that I've been using, there's a very good one by Sinclair Ferguson. There's also a very good one by Dale Ralph Davis, and they will go into detail of the various historical fulfillments that are prophesied here in these first 20 verses. And we could do that as well, but if we're honest, by the time you left the building, you would forget what all of the north and the south and the who is this person and what does this particular thing mean. And even if you memorize them all, it wouldn't necessarily help you learn the important lesson to be learned from these first 20 verses. You see in chapter 1021, I will tell you, the angel says, what is inscribed in the book of truth. Not so much referring to scripture, but referring to God's eternal counsels. And so, in verse 2, now the angel says, I will show you the truth. I will open to you this remarkably detailed prophecy, a prophecy that would find fulfillment in amazing detail over the next three centuries of Israel's life in the history of the ancient Near East and the Greek and Roman Empire. The fourth king, after Cyrus was Xerxes, or Ahasuerus, as he's called in the book of Esther, and he would be defeated by the Greeks at the battle of Salamis. That's what we have in the first two and three verses. And then we come to verse three, and we have this mighty king who arises and will do and rule with great dominion and do whatsoever he wills. This is undoubtedly a reference to Alexander the Great. You may recall, if you were here several weeks ago from chapter 8, that when Alexander died at a very young age, in his 30s, having conquered all of the known world, his kingdom did not pass to a natural successor. That's what it means in verse 3 and 4, when it says that it would be divided to the four winds of heaven. You recall that his kingdom was divided to four of his generals. Cassander ruled over Macedonia. Lysimachus ruled over Thrace and Asia Minor, Seleucus ruled over Syria and Mesopotamia, and Ptolemy, spelled with a P, ruled over Egypt. So verses 5 through 20 deal then with the aftermath of Alexander's kingdom being divided, and in particular, we're dealing with the king of the north and the king of the south. The conflict here is between the Ptolemaic king's in Egypt, that's the kingdom of the south, and the kingdom of the north, the Seleucus kings in the realm of Syria. So here unfolding, when you see the kings of the north, think the Seleucid empire in the realm of Syria, and then the kings of the south, the Ptolemaic empire there in Egypt. These verses depict a series of betrayals 
failed marriages and marriage alliances, invasions, victories, backstabbings, defeats, and all manner of villainy. And like I said, we could trace the historical fulfillment verse by verse for this prophecy, and we would come across the different battles that historians can tell us about, different women that are likely referenced here. Berenice is one, Cleopatra is another. But I don't think the main point is to understand the history of the Persian or of the Greek world. The main point, rather, is to marvel at the futility of these supposed world changers. Did you notice these mighty men and women seem to fall as fast as they rise? Just think of Alexander the Great. You know, go read a few paragraphs on Wikipedia or Google him and read just something of his might and his brilliance as a general. Received the titles King of Macedon, Hegemon of the Hellenic League, Pharaoh of Egypt, King of Persia, Lord of Asia. You know what Alexander gets in this passage? One verse. You see verse 3? A mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has arisen, the kingdom shall be broken and divided. That's it. Alexander the Great. You get one verse. Now, part of it is this story is not meant to give us history as we should understand it in their relative importance for the region or the era, but everything is told with reference to the glorious land, that is to Israel, to God's people. And even more than that, the center of this story is God. The historians will be able to tell the story with Alexander at the center here, Persia here, Greece here, the Caesars here. But we know that the real author of this history and the center of all of its meaning is God. So the way to understand these first 20 verses, it's all very complicated, but another way, it's all very simple. I want you to notice the word but, B-U-T. How many times in these verses we have the great strategies of the kings and generals of the world, but things don't work out? Verse 5, the kings of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger. So much for him. Verse 6. And after some years, I shall make an alliance, but, middle of the verse, she shall not retain the strength of her arm. Go to verse 9. Then the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. In other words, he wasn't victorious. Verse 11. Then the king of the south moved with rage, shall come out and fight. He shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into his hand. That means the one that he was opposed Verse 12, the multitude is taken away, his heart is exalted. He shall cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail. Verse 14, in those times many will rise up against them, shall lift themselves to fulfill the vision into the verse, but they shall fail. Verse 16, contrast with the strength, but he who comes against them shall do as he wills. And then in verse 17, he shall set his face to come. He shall bring terms of an agreement. He shall give him the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. The same thing in verse 8, but a commander shall put an end to the insolence. And again in verse 
19, he shall turn his face, but he shall stumble and fall. And then finally in verse 20, he shall rise in his place, but within a few days he shall be broken. Do you see it clearly? All of these kings, these queens, these generals, these rulers with their might, with their strategy, with their political machinations, but none of it lasts. None of it endures. If ever there were a depiction of Ecclesiastes, this is it. Vanity of vanities, all is vanities. Here we have wars, rumors of wars, without anything to show for these great kings and kingdoms. It's all sound and fury signifying nothing. We have a picture of permanent conflict and elusive peace. That is the commentary that you could scroll across the bottom of your preferred cable news network. Permanent conflict, elusive peace. Count on it. That will be a headline that will be suitable for tomorrow and the next day and all of next year. Although I try to keep my mouth mainly shut about contemporary politics, I, I actually follow a lot of it. Studied in college, religion and political science, the two things you're not supposed to talk about at the dinner table. And I do, I find the drama of it fascinating. I have a number of good friends who live in Washington, D.C., and I've asked them at times, especially during dramatic times, like the Kavanaugh hearings or impeachment or elections, I say, what is it like to be right there in the middle of it, just blocks from the Capitol there in D.C.? You know what they always say? It's terrible. <laughs> I say, it gets old. These things are exciting to everyone who doesn't have to live in them. And they'll tell me, we get so sick of it. We want to go about our lives, our ministry. Now, they'll also say, yes, there are a number of good people in politics. So it's not to say that it is uh, not a noble profession. It certainly can be. But they will say that on the whole, there is so much pride, so much cowardice, so much envy Pray for those that they might do the work of the Lord, but don't wish that you could be in the thick of it all. God calls some to it. But for most of us, we can look and be reminded just how much we need to pray. I love America. I am proud to be an American. But we all must remember this is not the most important kingdom in your life. It's not. Put not your trust in princes. They will fail you. They will disappoint you. Kingdoms will come and go, and someday they will be another confusing series of people and dates that most people will know nothing about. Put not your trust in princes. That's what the angel tells Daniel and wants to remind us. That's the first lesson. Here's the second. Be prepared. Be prepared. Follow along, beginning at verse 21. I'll read through verse 35. In his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant. And from the time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, and he shall become strong with a small people. Without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province, and he shall do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods, 
He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. And he shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for plots shall be devised against him. Even those who eat his food shall break him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. And as for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail. For the end is yet to be at the time appointed. And he shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant. And he shall work his will and return to his own land. At that time, at the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south. But it shall not be this time as it was before, for ships of Ketim shall come against him. And he shall be afraid. And withdraw and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the holy covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the holy covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help, and many shall join themselves to them with flattery. And some of the wise shall stumble, so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. Be prepared. These verses focus now on one particular individual. We have moved from the broad conflict between the Seleucid regime in the north and the Ptolemaic dynasty in the south to now focus on a particular individual. We have transitioned from Seleucus IV to Antiochus IV. You may recall he was the powerful horn that was depicted in chapter 8. He is, in verse 21, the contemptible person. This is a reference to Antiochus IV. Remember who this person was. He ruled Judea from 175 to 164 BC. And though that amounts to barely a blip in the scheme of the Greco-Roman world, he looms large in the history of God's people because of his great vitriol toward the Jews. He labeled himself... Epiphanes, which means appearing of God, quite the humble designation. During his reign, he slaughtered tens of thousands, maybe 20, 30, as many as 50,000. He entered the Holy of Holies. He sacrificed a pig on the altar. He defiled the temple. He took the sacred furniture. He put his own man in possession of the high priesthood. All the Jewish rites were eliminated. He erected an altar in the temple to Zeus. He put a statue of himself, Antiochus, and made offerings be made to it. The temple was left without offerings for a time. All the holy days were profaned. Human sacrifices were made on the altar. He instituted pagan cults. He forbid Sabbath and circumcision on pain of death. Whoever had a Torah scroll was put to death. Whoever had a circumcised child was put to death. He was quite literally as bad as they could imagine anyone being. So look at verse 28. It says, his heart shall be set against the holy covenant. That means he was implacably opposed to God's people. And then look at verse 31. 
Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress, shall take away the regular burnt offering. That's a reference to the history that I just gave you in summary form. As bad as all of this was, the real danger was not persecution. The real danger was compromise. You see there in verse 30, the second sentence, he shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the holy covenant. So some in the realm of this reign of terror would turn their back on God, would join an allegiance with Antiochus. Davis says in his commentary, in this reign of terror, it seemed the only choice was to be a live pagan or a dead Israelite. Look at verse 32. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. We see a division among the people. Some stand firm in service to God, but others find a way to make peace with this brutal dictator. He's seduced by flattery. He told them how special they were or perhaps all the promises that he would do for them. All they had to do was bow down to him. Which one of the, the kings or rulers of France was it who said, Paris is worth a mass, meaning if I have to be Catholic, so be it. It's worth it for Paris. Well, so some of them perhaps thought, perhaps reasoned to themselves, just as they may have been tempted there earlier in Daniel with the image and the fiery furnace well, let's just go along. What sort of say will we have when we're dead? We can't do much good for our people when we're, when we're executed. We can bow. We can worship. We don't really mean it. We'll go into the temple. So what if it's Zeus? We know in our hearts we're worshiping Yahweh. We have deep inside. We know what we're doing even though our actions say something different. They convince themselves, seduced by flattery, that they could join forces with this Antiochus and not come out sullied, polluted, we sometimes romanticize persecution. Oh, the church would be stronger then. Oh, we would all be on fire for the gospel then. I once knew someone who did doctoral work on persecution in Mexico, and he had been a, a missionary there. And quite to his surprise and against what many of us think, he determined, at least in that part of the world, that when persecution came, it didn't strengthen the church. Sure, some, there were heroic stories, but by and large, it was often effective. And it often suppressed and stamped out. It made ministry exceedingly difficult, that it was not some great time of flourishing for the church when there was persecution. So let us not, in our really quite remarkable serenity and calm, romanticize that somehow the church would automatically be stronger if it were just persecuted. To be sure, there are stories of courageous faithfulness, but there is also, whenever there is opposition by the government in particular to the church, there is widespread attrition and compromise, and so we must be prepared. Perhaps in our lifetimes, 
We will see pressures that are overt, loss of job, loss of promotion, loss of face. No doubt this happens at times. Or maybe the pressures will be more subtle, that if you stand up for Christ, not simply that you go to church or you're a religious person, but you really believe in the Bible and everything the Bible says, maybe you'll be ignored. Maybe you'll be cast outside the inner ring, as C.S. Lewis put it. You know that, that ring that all of us have, whether it's the ring of moms you look up to or the, the people in your bank that you aspire to or in your network of associates. You want to be in that inner circle, and you know if you maintain faithfulness to God no matter what, you'll never get there. They'll never welcome you in. Maybe it means something as simple as not participating in some activity or party or sports, whatever it may be, we must be prepared. I like the title of Ian Murray's biography of J.C. Ryle, Prepared to Stand Alone. Now, hopefully, we have the body of Christ. Hopefully, we have a church like this one. Hopefully, we have a multitude of others in this country and around the world, but are you prepared at some moment in your classroom, in your university, in your place of employment, around the Christmas table to stand alone? One of the reasons that a knowledge of the past is so crucial is that we must know what Christians have believed in the past if we are to be faithful in the future. It's not that they were always smarter than we are, but they tended to see things that we miss, and their blind spots don't tend to be our blind spots. And so while we can easily see their cultural insensitivities, they would easily point back to us our worldly compromises. We don't have a prophecy of Antiochus-like opposition. This was a word specifically given to prepare Daniel and his people for centuries to come. But what we do see is a pattern in Daniel that the kingdom of God will never be fully at home among the kingdoms of this world. The church of Jesus Christ ought never to be fully at home in any nation, in any political system. And so we must trust in God's word. We must trust in God's way. You notice the ones who do not compromise are called the wise ones. And when it says in verse 35, some of the wise shall stumble, it doesn't mean a moral stumble, it doesn't mean a religious compromise, it's speaking of a physical persecution. Though they may be harassed and harmed, it will be ultimately that they are refined, purified, and made white. Be prepared. And part of the preparation is to know that however bad it may be, However intense the pressure, however subtle the world's efforts to press us into its mold, it's only for a time. Verse 24, without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province. He shall do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among them plunder, spoil, goods. He shall devise plans against strongholds. This is a man on a rampant mission. Into the verse, but only for a time. But look at verse 35. Some of the wise will stumble. 
until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. Even Antiochus, wicked, vile Antiochus, operated according to God's stopwatch. And that was the comfort for generations to come in Israel. Yes, this is going to come. Yes, it will be as bad as you can imagine, but only for a time and always according to God's time. Be prepared. And here's the third lesson. Do not be afraid. Verse 36, and the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished. For what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the god of fortresses instead of these, a god whom his fathers did not know. He shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign god. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. At that time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind, with chariots and horsemen and with many ships. And he shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into the glorious land and tens of thousands shall fall, but these shall be delivered out of his hand, Edom and Moab, and the main part of the Ammonites. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and of silver and all the precious things of Egypt." And the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train, but news from the east and the north shall alarm him, and he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction, and he shall pitch, that is, he shall set up his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain, yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. Final lesson, do not be afraid. The question... To interpret this passage correctly, focuses on verse 36. Who is the king? Now, in verse 21, we were introduced to this contemptible person, and all the commentaries are agreed that's a reference to Antiochus Epiphanes. But now, even conservative Reformed commentaries diverge. Who is the king that is introduced into verse 36? Many scholars believe that we are still talking about Antiochus. After all, there's no clear indication that we have started to talk about another ruler. And clearly, the images that follow are similar to the images that have gone before. We're still talking about kings of the north and the south, and we're talking about regions in the, the, the Greek world or the ancient Near East with Moab and the Ammonites. And so, many have argued that this is still Antiochus. But others have argued that we're talking about someone far removed from Antiochus because the description doesn't really sound like the Antiochus of history, whereas the previous verses describe in remarkable detail what he did in Jerusalem. These verses and the battles depicted here don't really map on to what we know about Antiochus from history. So I agree with those scholars who think that verse 36 introduces a new person, a new character, and that what we have here is an end times antichrist sort of ruler. Now, 
The best reason for thinking this, besides the change in title from a contemptible person to now the king, is that this section doesn't really end until chapter 12. Uh, I promise Mike I wouldn't get into his chapter, but just notice verse 1 of chapter 12, at that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. So now we're going back to Michael, who's the guardian of God's people, and it begins with at that time. So chapter 12, we're still in this same prophetic window, and look at what we have by verse 3, those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. And previously in verse 2, those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. So by the end of this section, we are talking about resurrection which strongly suggests to me that this figure, the king, in verse 36, is not simply a pro another prophecy about Antiochus, because the time of Antiochus does not end with resurrection. But we're talking about an Antiochus-like person or character. So this is very common in biblical prophecy. You take someone who is the quintessential either good guy or, in this case, bad guy, and future prophecies describe then the ultimate climax of evil using this same sort of language. So it's no wonder that we're describing end times sort of events by still using the language that has resonance with Antiochus and the disputes between the kings of the, the north with the Seleucids and the Ptolemaic dynasty in the south and regions in that part of the world from Moab and the Ammonites. What we have, in other words, is a depiction of the end using Antiochus as a sort of anchor point. You'll notice that the section from verse 21 through verse 35, and then this section from verse 36 through chapter 12, verse 3, have a number of parallels. They both deal with conflict between the kings of the north and the south. They both deal with opposition against God. We see that in verse 36. He speaks astonishing things against the God of gods. We saw it earlier as he sets himself against the holy covenant. We see it again in verses 44 through 45. We see in both sections that some of the people end up compromised. There were those who were seduced by his flattery, and now we read in chapter 12, verse 2, there are some who have proven themselves to be full of shame and everlasting contempt. We also see that both sections end with a word to the wise. Verse 35, and some of the wise shall stumble, but they shall be refined. And then again, chapter 12, verse 3, and those who are wise. So again, we end both prophetic cycles by holding out, here's how you can get through this on the right side. You want to talk about the right side of history? Get on the right side of God's history. Be wise. So there's a basic pattern in both. There's a rise in power, there's conflict and persecution, there's suffering followed by compromise for some and steadfastness for others. This is a future vision deliberately cast using Antiochus as a type of antichrist. And if you read 2 Thessalonians 2, you'll see it has resonance with the man of lawlessness described there. 
The prophecy is not about the literal Antiochus, but one who is to come who will be even worse than this Antiochus. You may recall that Jesus uses Antiochus himself as a kind of benchmark for evil. Remember in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and Mark 13, Jesus spoke of the abomination that causes desolation. That's the same language that's used here in verse 31. And they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. That was a reference to the the pagan offering of sacrifices in the temple. Well, Jesus uses that same language for his prophecy, which has relationship likely to the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD and then spinning out to an even greater cataclysm after that. Notice the characteristics of this diabolical ruler. One, he bows down to the God of war and violence. You see that in verse 38, he honors the God of fortresses. So this is an implacable warrior despot. Verse 39, he shall deal with the strongest fortresses. So this ruler bows down to the God of war and violence. Second characteristic, he attacks the people of God. Flip back to verse 36, he shall speak astonishing things against the God of gods. He shall prosper till his indignation is accomplished, for what is decreed shall be done. And then third, fundamentally, he is a man who not only attacks the people of God with violence, but he is a man who wants to be God. You see again up in verse 36, he speaks against the God of gods. Verse 35, he exalts himself. He magnifies himself above every God. Again, in verse 37, he pays no attention to the gods of the fathers. He pays no attention to any other God, for he shall magnify himself above all. This is the characteristic of the Antichrist and is the spirit of all Antichrists, past, present, and future. And it's at the heart of all human rebellion that this man says, I will be God. When you see that rising up in other people, when you feel that rising up in your heart, it is nothing less than diabolical from the very pit of hell. That's true, biblically true, because it is at the heart of the very first rebellion in the garden and will be at the very heart of the last rebellion at the end of time. I want to be God, this man says. I set myself up as a God. I magnify myself as God. I want all to come and worship me. It's a frightening image. You don't have to try too hard to perhaps think of people in our own day who carry themselves with that same sort of spirit of the gods, the goddesses. And if we're honest, we don't have to look too hard into our own hearts to see it well up even in us. But no matter how bad it gets with Antiochus or an Antichrist, God's people should not be afraid because there is always a yet. You see the very end of chapter 11? Yet, it's a great word, with all his godlike splendor, with all his godlike pretension, 
this king is nothing but another human pretender. He will establish his palaces from sea to shining sea, yet he shall come to an end with none to help him. And just like that, he's gone. Just like all the other supposed gods and goddesses, all the other people who are indispensable, all the people who live to be feared on this earth, this final one, this culmination of all the evil, wicked rebellion against God is wiped out with none to help him. And that's it. He's gone. It gives us perspective. It helps us be prepared. It helps us not to compromise, and it helps us not to be afraid. And it gives our lives, our times, our tears, our heads, our hearts, an eternal perspective. Are you living for an everlasting kingdom? Are we putting our energies, our efforts into our own little human rebellions, or our own little empires that we've convinced ourselves are really about God's glory? It's for you, Lord, really. And I ask myself the same question, really? We need not be afraid. We need not fear. But we must be prepared and we must search our own hearts that we could sing with the psalmist, lift up your heads, you mighty gates, that the King of glory, that is the real everlasting King of glory, may come in. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, convict us of sin, lead us in the path of righteousness. May we be prepared to stand alone in whatever may face us in days ahead. We trust and pray that we would stand together, not in defiance, but in loving rejection of all that the world would entice us toward, and in complete allegiance and obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ, our once and coming King, in whose name we pray, amen.